Hi, I'm Tom. And this, big boy, is the Millsurf HQ podcast. Let's take it over to the light box. With an overall length of 72 inches and weighing in at just over 200 pounds, this healthy podcast host is joined, as always, by his main man, Kelly. What's up? What's going on? All right, that's enough of that. So, for our guest, I was very excited, and so I used AI to help me write an epic intro for you. So, forgive me for my flourishing words and exuberance, but like I said, you know, I was very excited. So, this is what the AI and I came up with. Ladies and gentlemen, prepare for an extraordinary episode today as we welcome a luminary in the world of historic firearms. This man meticulously researches and explores the intricacies of classic weaponry so we don't have to, and brings history to life with every detail in his videos. Who hasn't quoted him when discussing the Mosin Bolt or the Explodey Italian Vetterly or when you see a plastic pokey hand? So... Buckle up, get ready, as we delve into Milsurp Firearms with the foremost authority on World War I-era arms and the person responsible for me buying half of my collection. Here he is from CN Arsenal. Welcome, Othias. Hello, I am here now. So, AI knew you and helped out. Oh, God. It better know me by now. The uh, guys on our Discord have been shoving Othias and May and CN Arsenal references into every AI they can find. Yeah, that channel's blown up, hasn't it? Oh, my God. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you for joining us. We're super excited to have you on. We're both big fans of the channel and have watched probably a good majority of the videos. Uh, yep. it, it, it's actually, it's reflexive at this point to apologize to people for being fans of the show. <laughs> I just, it might, people recognize me in public and I go, I apologize for your wallet. Yeah. <laughs> none of them have said that I had no effect. Oh, no, you've definitely helped. Don't you worry. Yep. And, you know, we were discussing the other day that oh, the only nicknames we've seen for you were something to do with your beard. And, you know, Ian gets gun Jesus. So we were thinking like a remarkable man like yourself needs a remarkable, majestic nickname. So I, I got a few here. I was going to run by you. Let me see what you think of these. How about the gun law guru or the uh, Milserp maestro? I feel like that's a lot of syllables. Uh, the Maestro of Munitions. That's a long one, too. Yeah, you're using like $5 words here. <laughs> you, you, you could be like Babe Ruth and just take all of these nicknames. That's true. The the Pistol Professor. The World War One Wizard. Huh? My personal favorite, though, was the Milsert Moses. But that might be a little too close. Yeah, it feels associative, doesn't it? But you've led so many lost, troubled collectors to freedom over the years, so... Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I think I've just told people avoiding. Yeah, we have an unofficial uh, nickname for our channel. Though. You do? Okay, so I was going to ask, what, do you have any nicknames you tried to make stick of your own? Uh, we do. We actually have a side, We have a B channel that we've done almost nothing with, but it's under um, the Determined Idiots. <laughs> because oh, I've that, seen that. Yeah, because that's our thing. Is, yeah. <laughs> Idiots, determined idiots. All right, yeah, just uh, brute force our way through it. It's it's not quite as uh, a majestic as the maestro of munitions, but <laughs> it's it's, it's a uh, it's a lot more honest. <laughs> no, no World War One wizards over here. Yeah, also being a southerner, the word wizard can be a little uh, sticky. <laughs> <laughs> the grand wizard. Ooh, no, no, not that one. Ooh, yeah, stay away from that. Uh, 
So I, I won't bring up the uniform I had in mind for you to wear then either. <laughs> <laughs> so. Hey, you want to see my Halloween costume? It's a spooky ghost. Oh, I cut eye holes so you can see out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, immediately into the corner. This is good. Uh, perfect start. All right, so all right, the, we're gonna get into your collection a little bit here. Yeah, the way we usually start out is uh, asking some of our favorite questions of what kind of collector are you? Do you consider yourself a pattern collector? So you like all of the same type with all different variations or like a kind of a variety collector. You do the different countries or you do different eras or different wars, things like that. So what kind of collector are you? Uh, I guess I was a variety collector at first, but then I have been forced into being a reference collector, which is a form of variety collector. Okay. So I had a, I had a, Frankly, I became known in small circles for being a World War II collector. And my World War II rifle collection was making waves on social media, like early social media back when Reddit was sort of usable by gun collectors. Now you really can't even use the platform without getting punished on there. Wow. You know, I heard you call it an an impressive and extensive extensive World War II collection you used to have. Uh, I had done a lot. This is, you have to understand the time frame, but there were a lot of firearms that were not well understood that were in the corners so uh, a good example would be the eight millimeter conversions of the Mosin Nagants that were done in Poland and people are still arguing on what the model numbers were and what the features were and yada yada and so I would surf the sort of rural pawn shops around here and I was pulling in thousand dollar rifles for a hundred bucks each and so I really quickly, by being literate in, in what I was doing, picked up a, a pretty impressive collection. So, for example, I sold, um, you know, we're, I'm, I'm friends with Ian. I believe I sold him his first LaBelle M27, which I bought for like $400. So oh, that's pretty deal. sweet. Right. It was just about knowing what you were looking at, or at least knowing when something was of a pattern that wasn't standard. And not necessarily a Bubba. You could sort of look at it and go, mm, someone did that on purpose. I better go ahead and grab this if it's under $500, you know? And uh, you mentioned Mosin's there. So I know you started off, your first one you shot and bought was the was a Mosin 38. Did you start off, you know, specializing in Mosin's? No. Um, actually, the Mosin was a thorn in my side for a very long time. It might be why <laughs> I started collecting. Because I was not a gun person. Uh, I have, you know, like a business degree. I was deeply involved in the technology field. Uh, that was really what I was working on. When, uh, actually, I was with a coworker that took me out shooting for the first time. So I would have been in my early 20s. And then he, a week later, his girlfriend was not too thrilled about the Mosins that he had. So he sold them to me. And uh, he, it was a pair of them, a rifle and carbine. I split them up. I just gave one over to my roommate, kept the carbine for myself. And then I did that thing where you start wondering what the markings mean and you start wondering what makes it different from other rifles and why. But some people go deep into that particular gun, right? So is it just Mosin stuff you're in or you spread it out into... Well, at that time, I believe 76254R was available, the website. And what I found was everything was about sorting the firearm. Like with the Mosin history, even today, if you look online, it's a lot of sorting the Mosin. Like, oh, it's this Mosin or that Mosin. There's not a lot actually out there even today on why the Mosin, like what the Russians were doing, especially some of its feature decisions in 1891. When you start looking at other rifles, you go, I I don't understand. Why did they choose this? Because it's a very odd rifle. 
that we only think it's normal because there's so dang many of them, but actually it's a very strange rifle in a lot of ways. And that always bothered me. And as I collected more widely, it kept bothering me. And I, I certainly eventually found hints that it was clearly influenced by the LaBelle, by the Burdan. Um, I suspect there may be some influence coming from the Hotchkiss side of things just because of what the Russians saw. But eventually, you know, I believe it's Chumak who wrote the book that is now available in Cyrillic that actually explains here is the order of operations that they undertook. And it makes so much more sense because they really built, they just took the LaBelle barrel, they downsized the ammunition to save on weight and material. Then they said, we need a single shot rifle that uses this smokeless ammo in this barrel. And so that creates this bizarre bolt action that's really built around just being a single shot and has all these sort of organic extensions off of it because you're doing one thing, locking it in and doing the next. It's not a whole, it's the opposite of John Moses Browning. It's non-holistic. <laughs> it's incremental. But all that stuff wasn't available when I started collecting. So they created a bunch of curiosity for me because every other rifle, not every other rifle, but most other rifles, you could, if you got into it, find that history. Um, the incremental design decisions in the Mauser family are very, very well documented because there's so many different Mausers that show that evolution. Right. So I guess the Mosin's the opposite of that. <laughs> but anyway, I got, I got, I basically, I never could get a good answer on the Mosin, which drove me into being very skeptical of everything I read about other rifles because people would represent they had a lot of knowledge and then you'd ask them and then they they really didn't have anything other than sorting what was already available. And that's how you ended up going down the rabbit hole? Yeah, it's how I started consolidating. You know, I started reading every source I could. I would consolidate the data. I created a system for keeping my notes and comparing my notes and deciding what was more uh, valid or more likely to be valid. And so I started having this sort of like habit of trying to overorganize just for myself because I have a terrible memory and it was so much to go through that I just started writing articles for myself just so I could understand the problems that I was the questions that I was asking myself and then I started publishing those online on a little website and on reddit and things like that and because I took the time to take extra photos and things I got fairly popular and I realized if I wanted to keep doing it I'd have to switch over to video and then the rest sort of spilled over from there nice that's a good way of doing it. Just uh, your own little passion project that blew up. Yeah, it's actually, if you talk to Ian, it's a similar situation to his origin where he was just sort of hoarding data in one place and trying to get people to send him data. But his is a little bit more like, I'm just going to take all this data and when I need it, I'll pull from it. And mine was a little more, I'm trying to compare the data as I bring it in. Right. It's very frustrating that there's not a lot of information on these guns when you think there should be, you know, lots of documents and arsenal paperwork. And then you realize that it's a lot of word of mouth in this. Yeah, there's a <laughs> lot of that. And then a lot of the earliest books didn't cite their sources very well. So we struggle oh, with that with Samuel Colt. There's so many books about Sam Colt and none of them give, you know, individual citations that correspond to particular letters or anything like that. So, oh God, is it hard to know for sure whether an author is telling you the truth or not? People wouldn't do that. Just go into a book and lie. <laughs> <laughs> There's a beautiful Browning book that just came out by uh, Nathaniel Gorenstein, I believe I'm remembering his name correctly. And uh, oh, I hope I got that right because he's a very nice gentleman. But he um, he did a, the most recent Browning book, and boy, was it much better organized than anything that was available on Browning before. Ooh. I actually need to remember to send him an email asking him to do the Sam Colt book because that would 
Sam Colt's story is so fascinating and so poorly told to date that most people don't even understand how insane he was. <laughs> you know, I still have a hard time believing a lot of Bill Serp's stories and books ever since I was quoting Backbone of the Wehrmacht to everyone and I was told the information I was quoting was proven wrong already. It was a, a heartbreaker. Yeah, I mean, we go through that. Uh, you can only do so much, you know what I mean? You have to you have to choose to put your faith in someone that's doing the research because you can't research everything individually yourself. And so it's about choosing who to put your faith in. And there's a lot of that on our side as we're sort of trying to divine who has the the best, most likely story. And we don't always get it right. You know, we've, we've reworked episodes when other books have come out later and it was very clear that the more updated book had better information. Oh, back to your collection a sec. Do, yeah, I'm you, sorry. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Good. I was dying to know here. Do you care about having an all all matching and bayonets and slings and the condition being excellent? Or uh, well, I've never been wealthy enough to chase the bayonets in addition to the rifles. That's a, <laughs> accessories expenses are huge. I can't stand uh, leather accessories. As a matter of fact, I I I have to fight with a lot of the people that loan us things, and I tell them, "Do not send me the bayonet. Do not send me the leather." <laughs> Because I have to find a way to keep track of all that because I can't store it with the rifle that becomes too long. And then I don't have a lot of square footage here. I live in a very small home. So it's weird, but I just it's always a huge problem to try to track down where I stored somebody's piece of leather sling or whatever. And then leather is always the first thing to fail. So I'm terrified of it being in my hands when it fails. <laughs> right. So, I've, you know, do I have some of that stuff? Yes. Uh, not a lot of it. And do you care about matching bolts, or if it's rare enough, you'll you'll take it? I mean, I would prefer matching just for the sense of everything being correct to the piece at that time. So right now we're working on the Argentine 1891 Mauser episode, and there's a number of minor incremental changes that happen to those guns, and having matched parts would help you understand that evolution. But as long as you have the features you need in order to display the order that you need, I personally don't think it's a big deal. For my collection, I tend to be... Uh, Matthew LaRosier, the attorney down in Florida, he came by and, you know, we were doing that thing where you're going through uh, my collection or when I visit him, I'll go through his. And he's he actually said to me, he goes, you know, I'm really glad you're not stuck up about what firearms you have for references. And I say, well, no, as long as all the pieces are there and as long as I can sort of understand what the finish would have been, even if it's not in great shape, I personally don't mind because it's telling me the story that it needs to tell me. Like a, like a crossed off mum is all right then. Yeah, oh no, I don't. It, the, would I prefer not to have those markings? Sure, but I understand that they're just little fragments of the history, you know? Yeah, and I guess it comes down to dollar value as well. If it's twice as much for an all matching example, then it's just, yeah. at the end of the day, it's just a number. Also, it's a minor issue compared to other things. I have noticed a lot of our images uh, were used to develop video games. So I that weirdly has made me more cautious about what I put together in our images because if there's odd mixtures of early and late parts, I try to avoid it if I know because I've seen pretty funny. Yeah, I've I've seen video games in which certain cracks in handguards and things have been interpreted as intentional. No. And and so the, you know I'll see a rifle in a game and I go that is absolutely John's Mosin carbine that he lent me because they assume the crack that was in the handguard in the photo was a feature and they've, yeah. cleaned, they've cleaned it up like that was in i can't remember which game it was now but i looked at it and went, that is john's mosin carbine 
Oh, man. Like, I just knew. That is funny. Yeah. So, but no, for, for my collection, I, I was doing World War II rifles. You know, I had a couple handguns just for the fun of it, but not many. And then when we took on the World War One project, uh, frankly, launching into video took more than I realized. So I burned up my savings, and then I started liquidating my collection to keep making videos before we really picked up steam. And so launching CN Arsenal actually consumed the bulk of my World War II collection, which was sold off to keep sort of burning the fire Aww, in, in the def, des, desperate attempt to not have to go back to a regular job. So for your collection, That's did great. you mostly focus on like the standard issue arms? Or are you into like the more weird stuff? And did, did you also do like modern stuff in addition to Millsurp? So at that time, I was trying for the World War II collection, I was trying to have... It was a weird mix because I was doing that thing. I don't know. You guys know what it's like to be very OCD or compulsive oh, in, yeah. in your collecting <laughs> habits. So you make these rules for yourself so that you don't blow all your money and start shivering like a cocaine addict. And yeah. uh, so I had these rules. Where I was trying to get one rifle per nation, which I quickly achieved on the main powers. And then because I still had the hunger, I was coming up with obscure variations of rifles while take, you know, I take the main rifle. I take like a Bertier from France that I wanted to get because I already had the LaBelle and I already had the Moss 36 and I'd already, you know, assigned them to whichever power. And I started going, well, wait, what do they use in this colony? What do they use in that colony? Yeah. And so then like every fraction of a possible power was registered as a possible thing to get for a rifle and what I really wanted is I just wanted all the World War II rifles, but I was just unwilling to admit that to myself. Well, that's how you make us buy guns. Like, I, I don't know about some of these Indonesian, you know, nil rifles or stuff. And then I watch them on your show, and then I go, shit, I think I need that now. Yeah. Yep. Oh, man, another, <laughs> another one another one to get. Yeah, so that, that compulsive need to sort of explain everything so that I could have it probably helped enable this. Yeah, I, I think all of us collectors have that in a, in, in a way, like, We'll get what this for now. We'll upgrade it later on and sell this one. And end up keeping both because you know they're both a little different. Well, where I'm at now uh, is the World War II collection has been scattered, and I'll probably never rebuild it because I wouldn't even have the space to if I, I wanted to. I obviously picked up a number of World War One things because when my attention focused there, I quickly found it was a neglected market, and again found a whole series of things that were mislabeled, misidentified, underappreciated. Um, probably the biggest one there is I, I actually own the air service rifle that we filmed with nice. and I, cool. and I found it because somebody thought they had ripped me off selling me a sporterized 1903 for a thousand dollars. So they were <laughs> like, wow, that sucker bought a thousand dollars sporterized 1903. And I'm going, I think the last one of these things sold for like $20,000. Oh, <laughs> I, I was just so happy to spend a thousand only. Did you ever tell the guy afterwards? No. All right. So, <laughs> all right, so that's good. He, he's, he's thinking he, he got one over on you. Yeah, it was like it was like an online sale. He had blurry pictures. I mean, the only way I knew what I was doing, and I still kind of risky, but the pictures were so bad. I was sitting there like squinting, but I could see the wrist of the gun, and I could see that there was no inlet for a um, lower sling swivel. And as far as I can understand it, I don't think there were any 1903s that were never inletted for lower sling swivels. Now you might be able to find somebody that filled one in after the fact, but there would be signs of that. And this is like a virgin wrist. There was no sign of any inletting at all. And I went, I'm pretty sure that's real. You know, I, I probably would have thought it was Bubba if I saw it. Yeah, I would have <laughs> scrolled right past. 
Well, that's why, I mean, everybody else had it. It had been there for a while, actually. The reason we found it is we started looking for, I, I actually still have it, had found somewhere uh, at a gun show an original rear sight for one. And I thought, oh, well, if I could find an already sporterized 1903, I could at least make a uh, replica because I see the magazines every once in a while for like, you know, a hundred bucks. Uh, I could do this as a side project because I've got the rear sight. If I find a sporterized job, it won't be that bad. It'll look right. And then uh, while looking for a sporterized one, that's the one I found. And I went, wait. Uh... <laughs> wow. I mean, it had been there for months, but nobody had looked at it, you know? Yeah, the front of that is the way some other sporterized 1903s I've seen have been done, like that snub nose. So I guess it just blended in. Yeah, there's a couple other tells, but I don't know. I had somebody asking like really specific questions about how to tell a fake from a real one, but they weren't sending me any photos of theirs. And I realized that somebody was probably trying to make a fake and yeah, grinded mm. me for the details. And I'm going, mm. yeah, maybe not. Can you send me the 3D? Uh scan of it please <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i did um i ended up with some more war one stuff here and there and generally just when i see it and i know it's the right price i i will if i can uh we have we have gone from being okay like you know the show i burned a lot of money to start it then i was broke for a long time and then we slowly built money back up and then frankly for a short period i was flush with cash before we brought may in full-time but i was also dying so then <laughs> <laughs> then when we brought her in, we took a huge financial loss on that uh, because you basically have, if you imagine, we had gotten a show big enough to have almost two incomes, and then she or had her maybe, own. Or maybe described as a financial loss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it's, if you think about it, it's like you have you have this. You know, she had a regular job, and then I had a job that was paying almost two salaries, but they're small salaries. But there's two of them, so that's three salaries. And then when we t when we onboard her. She, we lose one third of all that possible income, and then half of mine goes over to her to pay her at a lower rate than what she was on her own. So, like, it just it really, it really destroyed us for a couple of years, and it, it, we've never really have recovered. That was the most money we've ever made in our lives, easily. Like because, reset. Yeah, and you know, we we thought maybe we'd be able to build it back up to that, but it has not been that case. Because right after we onboard her, all of a sudden our numbers start dropping. So apparently me uh, working 120 hours a week is the only way to go. <laughs> well, yeah. the, the public I've spoken. <laughs> oh, was, oh, that was so, I mean, it was either lose the show or, you know, take the financial hit of bringing her over full time. Because it was, uh, at that point, I had gone about a year by not sleeping one day a week. And that was how the show was getting done. <laughs> oh, yeah. Can't was do YouTube, that. Was YouTube bad back then? No, see, that's the problem is we were getting better views on YouTube. So the projection was if we could just get May over, we'd keep on the course we were going. But, I mean, we did Project Lightning, and we never recovered. Uh, I don't know what it was about Project Lightning. I don't know if it just put us in the view of YouTube, but uh, that's when the doom spiral started, actually. Project Lightning was a curse to us financially, which is weird because everybody loves it. But yeah. it, it absolutely wrecked our metrics. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. Yeah, that's one of those, I wish I knew what was really happening behind the curtain things, because I think that might have just been what finally got us enough attention to be labeled as uh, dangerous. Oh, okay. Put you on the back burner after that. Yeah, or I've had suspicions that YouTube detects automatic gunfire, and Project Lightning was nothing but machine gun sounds. So. <laughs> that makes sense. Right, on paper it looked bad. Yeah, so I have some World War One stuff laying around now, and then to be frank, I 
I've accidentally become a revolver collector because no one understands revolvers. <laughs> they are pretty dang cool. So actually, if I was if I was to say I'm a collector of anything, I guess I mean I guess I'm a collector of revolvers because I've been trying wow. to grab certain patterns so that I could get in there and and unpack what the heck is going on inside. Commercial as well. Um, on rare occasion. So there's a handful of commercial designs that I feel are influential on the military designs. So I keep my eyes out for them, but I mean, obviously any revolver I see that I don't understand how it works, I stop and take a moment to figure out how it works and then roughly what date it came from, but mostly military, because I think that's really what I want to do is I think I'd like to sit down and get a book together that actually explains the evolution of revolver lockworks and how they work. One of our most popular videos is our revolvers 101 video. Um, and that was just me sort of giving a loose overview of, hey, revolvers are trying to accomplish several very complicated mechanical operations that semi-automatics don't have to accomplish. And once I kind of explain that a lot, of, I've seen a lot of people talking about wheel guns more often now because they, they have a sort of, they have the vocabulary to express the differences that they're seeing. Yeah, I, I really appreciate watching the, um, the, the way they evolved to eject the cases and all the different revolvers, you know, the, all the unique ways, sometimes a big long pole, you know, that you stick out or right. you got to yeah. turn it each one, one at a time. And really interesting. Yeah. Your your Bodeo video made me had to go. I had to go buy one after that. <laughs> yeah, they're so cheap and they're so technologically advanced. Oh yeah, they're great. So, what is your oldest in your collection? Because I I don't know if I've seen you go back to flintlocks. Uh, I'm trying to think because it's you know it's the revolver collection is what drew it out. I probably. It's got to be one of my wheel guns. It's got to, I think I have some that go back about 1859, 1860 in the wheel gun collection now. Oh, cool. because uh, I've been checking the antique shops and the, the uh, civil war shows just to sort of find certain mechanisms I was looking for. Um, I have what's known as a, I did a little video on how it's, how it's a center fire, but I have a, uh, Padot Cordier. Most people call him the Raphael because that was the importer in America during the civil war. But that's a 1860 patent. I couldn't say exactly what year mine was made. And it was a triple action, so single and double action and center fire, which is a lot of very cool features to have in 1860. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a sort of modified Beaumont action, but not really. It's, it's kind of its own thing, which is strange because it didn't seem to influence much else. But it, I don't know. I like it. That's about as early as I can think. I can't think of anything earlier than that. And do you do any modern stuff or not really? Oh yeah, no, I I, I have a defensive concealed carry, those sorts of things. So okay. And then I'm I'm friends with manufacturers around here. Actually, uh, I am actually weirdly under a lot of NDAs. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I, I get a lot of the engineering side guys will send me emails, and then I'll end up talking to them, and so. I'm under several major manufacturers NDAs even now. And I always do this thing where I'm careful about not talking about products. So somebody will say, Oh, Hey, whatever rifle just, or did you, what do you think of the whatever rifle? And I go, who told you that? And they're like, it's been out <laughs> for three months. And I go, Oh, thank God. Cause I've been keeping a secret for two years. <laughs> Have you had input on any of these designs? Uh, a little bit. Oh, that's awesome. There's that definitely, cool. I've had, I've had a fair bit of input for problem solving. And then also, it's very expensive to get patent lawyers and researchers. So 
a lot of the guys will sort of flip stuff by me first and go, have you ever seen this before? And I'll go, oh yeah, I saw that in 1912. And they go, dang it. And then they <laughs> run off to do other work on it. So there's some of that too. Can you name any of the ones that are out or prefer to pass on that? Um, the problem is I'm more aware, like I have to, I'd have to sit down and realize what's out. Um, I know, I basically knew all of Henry's new lineup for a while, not because I was consulting on those, but on another project that's not even done. But in the process, I was shown the other projects. So I saw Henry's revolver before it came out. Not that I would consult it on it, but just I saw it. So things like that. Like it's just whenever once you start talking shop and you're under the NDA, you get shown a bunch of stuff. Okay. That's so cool. that's cool. All right. I think we pried into your collection a little little too much here. So we'll uh, move away from it. <laughs> it sounds like you had a great World War II collection and you, and you still miss it. If I had to <laughs> take a hint. I mean, it's. It was certainly easier to shoot that collection because the ammo wasn't as bizarre. <laughs> you have any? What were your favorites to shoot? Say like the top three or so. Um, I mean, I don't mind a Garand. M1 carbines are always very pleasant to shoot, though. That's like a toy. Yeah, my son's favorite. I shouldn't have let him use that because that's now all he wants to shoot. <laughs> <laughs> thirty car. Well, at least there's a little. There's a little more thirty carbine now. Yeah, like not a lot, but it was more than there was for a while there. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, I've always I've always been happy with Mauser shooting. To be fair, I will say nowadays the stuff I like shooting, I have uh, I really like the six five fifty five, so the Swedish and Norwegian guns. And then, uh, weirdly, I love this. The uh, I have a Brazilian Mauser nineteen oh seven that we just picked up cheap to get through the show. And then that's just yeah. seven millimeter Mausers across the board, but especially the long barreled ones are so pleasant on like a 700 yard range. I mean, you can just drop them in. Well, we were going to ask later, but you said six, five, and now you said seven. So which is the best Mauser round? Six, five, seven, six, five, seven, or big, I'm, a, big I'm, I'm a huge fan of seven. Oh. Like, and, but the problem Ooh. is, can I say that that's the best universal cartridge? I can't, but I Close. am a, my my thing with six five is the same thing that the Italians kind of ran into, which is that you get a six you start with a six five because you have bottlenose projectiles and you're trying to get a uh, flatter trajectory, right? And then you also there's weight savings and other things like that. But once you go to Spitzer and boat tail bullets, the six five not that it doesn't get it does get advantages in Spitzer. But the advantage gain isn't as much as when you go from like an eight millimeter bottlenose to an eight millimeter Spitzer, and so the Spitzer cartridge solves a lot of the problems that made people turn to six point five in the beginning. Uh, and so yeah. I tend to favor a, you know, I think of seven mil as being my preferred smallest diameter caliber. I think there's some validity to have why. I mean, there's certainly a reason why eight millimeter stuck around, but you see everybody kind of goes back to a general thirty cal for NATO. And everybody keeps kind of doing ammo experiments these days, but guess what we keep finding? We keep finding everybody ranging between seven and eight millimeter over and over again. Like it just, it's just a cycle that keeps repeating itself. So uh, given that you're only going to have so many performance gains in any given direction, as a historical shooter, I find seven millimeter to be the most pleasant to work with. And it shoots very accurately for me. And the rifles that tend to chamber it are usually foolproof because they're usually just Mausers. <laughs> Is that why the Carcano di didn't go to the Spitzer round sooner? Because it was minimal in the benefit? Yeah, because why Why bother? There was no real... 
there was no real benefit not not at least not enough benefit i mean there was some because this obviously the swiss in the uh i mean the swiss the swedish and the norwegians eventually went to spitzer but for the italians they went you know at the ranges we're fighting why the heck would we change like why would why would we give up sexual density why would we do all this other stuff just to get a little bit flatter when we're really fighting at under 300 meters and so and I haven't done the heavy research on this, but that's why you see them move over to 735, which is actually that shorter that shorter case 735 is a very smart cartridge. It's just that they couldn't get it done logistically. Yeah, bad time to introduce that. But I actually, you know, it's funny. Everybody loves to kind of crap on the Carcano. But at the same time, I get a lot of people that tell me, oh, you know, you, you do all this min-maxing between bolt actions, but at the end of the day, it's a bolt action. Does it really matter in combined arms? And I kind of think the Italians are right. They're like, no, it doesn't matter. These are cheap. We still know how to make them. Make them for limited range. Make them with limited range sights. Make them really light and easy to carry around. I mean, Carcano Universal TS carbines or the quote-unquote cavalry-style Moschettos are excellent mechanized carbines before you get to the modern era. They're just wonky. <laughs> so, yeah, so what is it that doesn't click with the collectors that keeps them fairly cheap? Is it that, their wonkiness? Yeah, that's, they're distinctly unpleasant to shoot and work with because they have weird <laughs> sights, and then the you know the clips that you're not really supposed to reuse, you've been reusing them, so they don't feed right. Right. Like they're just they're they're pain when they're a hundred years old, but at the time they're probably it's one of those things of like they spent the least to get the most, and it turns out you know it, again everybody likes to make fun of uh, what is it mil spec is the lowest qualified bidder, carcanos are mil spec, right. All right. So uh, let me make a quick note here. Uh, during our research, I've noticed that you've answered a million questions. You've given your opinions on a, on a million questions. So it's kind of hard to ask you stuff that you haven't been asked before. Oh, no, <laughs> no nobody, nobody listens to an entire single episode of ours. So you can ask the same question 18 times and it'll be fine. No, oh, perfect. <laughs> no, as long as there's traffic, I, I get to listen to entire episodes. <laughs> so, And it's very hard to watch me shoot when you're driving, let me tell you. But so we tried to get some fresh questions, some different angles on stuff. So, you know, you got to forgive us if we ask you something you've been asked before, but you know, no, no. that's so much. So we first, I want to ask you some stuff on the CN Arsenal channel a little bit. And I first wanted to know the ampersand in the name. Has that been a pain in the ass at all? I, extremely, uh, I sincerely <laughs> regret writing the channel. It's been, so, you know, even just trying to register stuff online. For library, you know, we are I have a huge manifest that I'm so it's a little easy to pursue copyright issues because we were having major problems when we were just releasing stuff on Imgur back in the day. And uh just that process alone, it's like government websites don't like ampersands, so you have to you have to have alternative no. spellings everywhere you go. C underscore arsenal. Yeah, or it's just spelling out A and D and then trying to get people to you know go to the website. So we actually ended up uh, registering oldgunshow.com. Yeah. So, so if you just go to oldgunshow.com, it takes you to CN Arsenal. But we're we're also welded that brand. CN Arsenal has a lot of goodwill. And so we can't just change the name overnight. But good Lord, I regret that name so much. <laughs> were you close to name, being named something else? No, you know, it's just one of those things I kind of thought of and slapped it together on the site. You know, it's... Uh, Look at Top Flader Mouse. You know Top Flader Mouse's YouTube channel, which shoots the exotic shotgun rounds. Yeah. 
there's just a username for him because he had combined the word for Dao, like the Dao De Ching, with uh, <laughs> Flater Mouse because he was watching The Tick, and they had their Flater Mouse in that t- that cartoon. You remember that? No, I don't remember that. Oh yeah, there's a character called Der Flater Mouse in the cartoon, the Fox cartoon version of The Tick, and Tau Flater Mouse and I both love that cartoon. So I immediately recognized. It. I said, "Did you name yourself after Der Flater Mouse, but from The Tick?" And he goes, wow, you're the only person to guess that. And I went, yeah, it's the same vibe. And it just stuck. Yeah, so then he just goes around like that. Or look at like Iraq veteran 8888, who he's like, like, everybody says it's a hate symbol. (laughs) He says, he says, I just really like Dale Earnhardt. And we all know, like people who know him, not that he said it, but I believe that he just hit eight. Right, then he put in a rack veteran and it was taken, and then he put a rack veteran eight in and it was taken, and then he just kept hitting eight until they took it. Like I can guarantee you that's what happened. Yep. That's that's great. And C A N D Arsenal, sometimes the people put C A N D A Arsenal, like Arsenal yeah, after yeah. then you get spelling misspells. I get C N R Arsenal, Carsenal. Yeah, I knew that had to be a pain in the ass. And from a programming, computer programming perspective, the ampersand was always trouble. No, it was a stu- <laughs> stupid, stupid move. <laughs> and then, by the way, the logo we put on the original website was the end, the end book. And then we haven't done the Garen to date, which yeah. upsets everybody. <laughs> I yeah, well, uh, that, was, that was going to be one of our questions. What's the episode everybody bugs you to make other than the 1911? Uh, we're over the hump. Because <laughs> before... Yeah. The number one most requested episode was the Lee Enfield until we did it, and then everybody yelled at us. And then <laughs> then they wanted the 1911 after that, and then once we did that, everybody effed off. Like, the you, for the amount of complaining about the 1911, you'd think the views would have been astounding. And don't get me wrong, they're higher than usual by far, but, you know, it did not turn into a, a smoking crater of views because people like complaining more than they like actually participating. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right. There's thousands of memes about it, though. I mean, I've made some of those. <laughs> That's funny. So when you were first doing the channel, it seemed like you uh, did like a episode every week or so. Are you still kind of on that cadence or have you have you missed a few here and there? Uh, I know you've like slowed down as the episodes get longer and more detailed. Uh, no, we haven't actually. We set a pace of an episode every other week and we have met that, excepting the occasional special. And, right. and when we do the specials, we're usually pretty transparent about it, where we go, hey, uh, we we finally kind of ran over our own toes and couldn't keep up, or somebody got sick, so we did the special. And we try to keep some special ideas in the back pocket, because people do want to see the top 10 whatever, or you know some other side opinion, like the Revolvers 101. So we try to make the specials very valuable for people, and they're certainly not shorter than a normal episode. They're just easier for us to produce. Okay, nice. But no, we we have not we have not given up our every other Tuesday release except, I believe during the uh, the Great Sickening, if I recall correctly, we might have shifted one week. That's the, I mean, it's almost a decade of that, right? Jeez. Yeah. Um. Well, yeah. I had, I had read a. So when I started the channel, I I went with consistency is king, which is why a lot of the data is designed to be able to let you compare stuff across different guns. It's why we have a very dry outdoor filming style and people are going, why didn't she run it? Why didn't she do X, Y, and Z? And the answer is, right. well, it's, it's just a demonstration of how the gun works. It's not a demonstration of the most tactical way to use it. It's just, okay, like even men of the period would have just lied down. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be standing there in a field. They would, they would be on the ground using it, you know? 
But if, if I film it on the ground, it's a lot harder to film the gun and show yeah. you it working. So we don't do that. Yeah, I like the consistency. Like every episode, you know what to expect and what angles you're going to see, You're gonna how the close-ups will be, how May will be. Right. And then I don't know, do you ever read Schlock Mercenary? Do you know that comic? No. Oh, he it was a webcomic guy. He's a sci-fi webcomic. And uh, I, I had been reading webcomics since 2000, maybe 1999. Um, it's just a daily habit to kind of click. You know, when I first opened up Internet Explorer that day, I would just look at my webcomics and I'd go about what I was doing. It takes about, you know, eight minutes to read them all. And uh, Schlock Mercenary was the only one since I was a you know high school student that had a printed one every day i mean he never missed a day for 20 years that, that it was in serialization and then he you know after 20 years he gave up the project and uh it was still ongoing when i started the show and i went you know i don't want to miss my deadlines i obviously can't do something every day because of the size of what i'm doing but i'm gonna hit every other week and that was awesome a very stupid promise because it <laughs> i have never actually gotten below a 60 hour work week ever since then because it's just a stupid stupid promise yeah, our next question was going to be like, what's the average amount of time that goes into each episode? Because we know it's got to be a lot because they're very detailed and great episodes. Yeah, you're looking an average of uh, 120 hours between May and I, and then I'm I think Bruno's probably got 20 to 40, depending. Ooh, oh man. So you're, I mean, eh, you're looking at close to 200 man hours on every episode. Has it gotten easier since you started? Like, do you have a you know a down pat now, or? Well, for me, yes. Because, you know, the early ones, they're 15 minutes long. They seem slapped together. But what it is, is you don't understand. It's one man all by himself just sort of running through whatever he can get for books and whatever. And just, it's, I hadn't even built a library yet, you know? And, and so those are, were nuts trying to do those. And then slowly, I've I've worked up better ways of taking notes and getting them compressed quicker and getting to the truth quicker. I have That's probably good. 100 episodes that you could arguably call partially written in the sense that I, I just have a folder of uh, references to firearms that we haven't covered. So if I'm reading a book on the Adams revolver and something comes up about Webley that I've never seen before, I immediately stop what I'm doing, open up the folder and punch in that data and the page number so that I know when I come to that episode later, I can grab from this resource, you know? So Great. a lot of times now when I start an episode, there's already a, a word document where there's a note from myself three years ago going, Hey, don't forget to read this paragraph again. Right. And if, if you went to the effort to put it in, the, in there, it was something important, probably. Right. To know. Well, <laughs> I mean, there's been some amazing things tucked away in books that aren't about that topic. And so that part's gotten really much better since I started taking notes that way. So, so he streamlined it down to 120 hours. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, bringing in an animator was a huge thing because we were doing those 2D animations. And I say we, I was doing them. And those were labor intensive as all get out. I think I had 20 hours in each of those 2D animations to begin with. Oh, yeah. the, when we brought in the 3D animator, we hired him. Uh, his name's Bruno. Yeah. Bru <laughs> it was very interesting. I was showing Bruno how to do like what we were doing. And I was showing him how I was doing it in 2D. And I had basically brute forced some certain operations in animation that I didn't have to. And he's going, oh, my God, if you had just been trained in animation, you could have saved yourself so much time. <laughs> And I'm going, yeah, no, I did it this way. And he goes, it's kind of schizophrenic and brilliant that you were able to streamline it as much as you did without actually knowing anything about how to kind of get around these problems. Yeah, like a guy learning guitar on his own versus the trained guy. Right. And then, uh, fun fact, once he started animating for us with magazine rifles and pistols, I noticed that there was a creep 
there's a sort of a, a, a time creep that was really bad. And we also had some, I don't know how to call it, like inconsistencies in, you know, between round one and three. And I said, aren't you looping these? And he goes, well, I can't loop them because you're doing five rounds and I have to feed each round from a different position each time. And I said, oh. no, you don't. And I showed him how I did it in 2D, how I would how I would time the, uh, I guess you could call it the coordinates of each. I would clone each cartridge and then time the coordinates so that, the, you know, round two ends up in exactly round one's position. And then I loop the animation, but I hide the next round on the next loop. And so in the long, it, you know, when it it has a seamless one frame transition where everything lines up where it should, but I'm actually running a loop with one minor adjustment of deleting the next round. And genius. Right. And oh. so I showed, I showed him that system and he goes, oh my God. So he started animating that way and we cut about half the time off of his animations easily wow. doing that way. So at least I had my one point on the board where I got to teach the animator something out of my sheer desperation to get things done. Uh, your brute force method. Yeah. Wow, that is good. But the good. animations are a great part of it. I mean... Oh, yeah, they're invaluable. Yeah. Yeah, the, the queen of the 2D animations is the Luger, which is when I finally lost my mind. <laughs> because I had to, I had to create... I, there was no way to explain a Luger without having two angles. And so, therefore, I had to do two animations that were timed to each other, which is like doing two and a half animations. And that drove me insane. <laughs> That's when I was like, I need an animator. I can imagine. 40 hours. I mean, it... so you covered most World War I guns. So what, what percentage, though, do you think of the guns that were still used in World War I that you never got to uh... get a show on? maybe five percent i, I don't oh. know in terms of a percentage i'm not sure but i could tell you pretty quickly because i have spreadsheets like you wouldn't believe yeah kelly said you have you probably have lists of of all this stuff and i was like i i don't know if it's, if it's 30 percent left yeah or... i'd like to do a rehash on those some of the monlicker straight pulls because there's sub models that we didn't really hit tight enough in there and... but if i scout this real quick and those episodes that you haven't done, is it because you can't find an example or you just haven't gotten to them yet? Uh, I can't find an example usually, or we can't find a supporting example. So I had somebody offer me a Schwarzloza at one point and then couldn't find him again. I know, actually, now that we're talking, I need to send an email. A friend of mine told, actually, this is awful. A friend of mine told me he just bought a Schwarzloza and I went, oh, good, we can finally film that. And I said, wait, where'd you get it from? And he named another guy who I've known for five years who could have told me, but he didn't. So, <laughs> like, we haven't done the Schwarzloza. Uh, there's a number of iterations of the you know, There's multiple guys with Schwarzlozas. It's crazy. I mean, there's, there's really, like, two <laughs> floating around. Yeah. The, um, the, <laughs> there's, like, there's some submodel stuff where, like, I really have never gotten to photograph a bunch of examples of certain guns, but we covered the main line of them. That's fine. Uh, I never got to cover like the Maxim 1912, which is a sub model, so it's not that big of a deal. The big one for me that really makes me upset is we haven't managed to cover the Santatia 1907 or the Pateau 1905. Those are two big machine guns. Uh, there's a Santatia here in South Carolina that I could probably arrange to shoot, but like half of the mechanism is missing. Oh. And so I've even gone so far as to try to arrange with other museums because the stuff that's missing is like sights and cover plate. So they're not operating parts of the gun. And so I've really tried to kind of spin that and get some museums to help me out and be like, can I borrow like just these parts? Because you, they won't they won't actually be doing anything. They're just going to be on a gun that's running. And even that's not good enough for a lot of museums. So I'm like, crap. So trying to put together a 1907 to film has been a nightmare. Um, 
let me see. I haven't shot either the Walther Model 6 or the Dreyza 9mm, so there's two horrible 9mm German blowbacks. The ones that I know of are with people that do not want to shoot them. Uh, so if you if you can't shoot them, you're definitely not doing an episode on it? I could, but the problem is a financial one at that point. We came up with a system for how we would do an episode without shooting so that it would be modular to accept a shooting segment later. But uh, at the end of the day, I have an audience and a budget, and we're not wealthy people. Um, I could quit CNRSL right now and be a manager at McDonald's and make more money, and I'd have health insurance. <laughs> so I can't stop production, drive across the country, or even fly. But flying means risking the equipment not showing up, which is even worse. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I have to drive to wherever it is, film it, There'd be no shooting segment, so that means no minute of May, no shorts, no nothing can come from it that's any good. And so I get one-third the value and no promotional opportunities with it. And yes, the data's out there, and that's nice, but it's just not its not good enough to kind of keep the show moving when I could just go do a World War II firearm and everybody would love me for it. Yeah. So we, yeah. Have, a, we have a standing yeah. offer to do the Mondragon. However, that's Whoa. a bit... That's very involved, and I need to wait till good travel time. So the Mondragon will get done, as far as I know. Um, I'm also that's waiting cool. on I'm waiting on some data because there's a gentleman in Mexico that's been doing more research on those. So the longer I wait on the Mondragon, the more we know about it. And then I've never gotten a hold of it, like a self slaughter carabiner, so the Mauser 1916, the the Flagger rifle, you know. Um, yeah, I played them in uh, video games. Yeah, <laughs> I've I've never laid hands on the. <laughs> I mean, everybody would love it if I got a hold of the Russian automatic, but I haven't gotten a hold of that. Uh, Federov, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a big request, but I just, just I, there was supposedly one in the Aberdeen collection. If anybody knows where it went, please God tell me, but there's supposedly one in the Aberdeen collection. However, a big chunk of the Aberdeen uh, small arms collection is missing. It's just off the radar. That doesn't mean that somebody doesn't know where it is. Like, I'm sure it was boxed up and put somewhere on purpose by human beings. But it seems that whoever did that is not plugged into the curatorial network that I am part of, which is very large. Um, but currently, I don't know anybody who knows a guy who knows where that gun got put. And there's all sorts of whispers about it being here or there or wherever, but I've never actually seen any of it resurface. So somewhere in the army storage, there is a Fedorov, supposedly, but I have never been able to figure out where to borrow it. That was one question I did want to ask of like the curator network is that something you just kind of like slowly built up over time with like the like well, kind of building legit legitimacy with your channel or did you like know some people beforehand kind of thing well i built a one-to-one -one relationship with a number of curators and researchers but then realizing that that's not the way to do things i actually created a the only platform everybody could seem to agree on for the most part was facebook although still not everybody uh the biggest number of people i could get would go on a facebook thing so I actually created a private group. I brought in Ian, who helped me out with it. And so I said, hey, Ian, do you want to do this with me? And he goes, oh, that's a good idea. And we just grabbed every writer that we knew of that was like a, a an actual researcher writer. So if you're listening to this and you're one of those guys and you're not in there, let me know. And then uh, curators of large collections and also collectors of very large collections um, and specific collections, you know, people who have a target. Uh, I've dragged in all those guys to one place where they post questions to each other that nine out of 10 never get answered because they are the very hard, they're the very hard questions, you know? 
but that's great. You ask the question and they can go through their Rolodex and try to figure out where to find whatever you're looking for. Yeah, the the few that do make connections are frankly very fascinating and it helps out with those guys a lot. And it's also done a good job of getting them letting them all know each other. So it's a nice system for me because I don't have to run it. And then a lot of guys have been able to help each other out without me even being involved. So that was that was a very nice thing that we put together. Oh, other things we haven't covered. Uh, I haven't gotten a hold of a Fiat Ravelli yet. Uh, I haven't gotten a hold of a Perino. We shot a Villa Perosa, but I actually haven't managed to do the episode yet. Once you start rolling into World War II, are you going to go back? Yeah. Oh, well, we're, so we're not going into World War II. Oh. I mean, we are. But we, we are I mean, we already have. Nobody I, noticed. I, oh, hey, are you guys ready for the quiz? What's the uh, World War II episode of Seen Arsenal that's already out? Uh, the nineteen eleven. That's not World War Two. <laughs> oh well, I guess not. Uh, what, was, what was the other guess? Uh, uh, Spanish like Star nineteen twenty one or something like that. We haven't done the Star nineteen twenty one yet. Shit, oh, damn it! The hell is it? I mean, you're close. We did. We did the Astros. Oh, the Astro. Uh, complete with complete with German service all the way late into the war. Astro, not the star. I was close. Yeah, but, but Spain doesn't count, so nobody remembers that that's a legitimate World War II episode we've done, but nobody noticed. Yeah, I saw that. I'm like, oh, are they, are they going into World War II now? And then... I'm, I'm actually quite proud that I managed to sneak a World War II episode in, and no one has noticed that it was a World War II episode. Not one person has said, wow, you did a World War II episode. Yeah, people would have lost their minds if they realized it. Yeah. That's weird. We've also done a ton of non-World War One stuff. Before the war, I even had a comment yesterday where somebody was like, oh, whatever, what all these obscure revolvers that might have served in the war? And I'm going, no, the Enfield 1880 did not serve in the war. That was just an episode about the Victorian era. It, it, there was no mention of World War One in it. Yeah, people seem to all, all think that you're only World War One and anything else. Well, the problem is it's easier to, it's smarter and easier to work backwards because you can tell them where things came from. So when we get to World War II, there'll be a fair bit of being able to talk about semi-automatics or automatics that are based on X, Y, and Z. But even that, you know, I was talking to someone else about, say, the SVT-40, the Moss uh, 44, on into the FN-49 and FAL. They all use that tipping block locking system. And we're talking about it, and I said, you know, the earliest gun I can think of that uses that system is the Marlin pump-action shotguns. And they just use a, a pump action instead of a gas operation to tip them. And uh, another researcher, uh, I believe it was Maxim Popenker, actually, said, what about the Colt 1895 potato digger? And I went, oh, my God, because it's a machine gun. I didn't even think about that. But you're right. It uses a tilting block like that. That may actually be where all the inspiration came from in reducing it down to rifle size. Has, anybody, has anybody said that out loud? Like, this is the first time I'm saying it more publicly, too. But has anybody made a speculation before that moment? Because, I mean, somebody might have, but it wasn't me, and it wasn't in a book that I read. And you're kind of going, oh, yeah, these things come from somewhere. What does that mean? So do you have a full list of your World War II guns in, in order that you would like to do them in, at least? No, no, I can only do strings if I'm lucky. Uh, I would prefer to ease into World War II. The sort of loose plan is to kind of high-low it to do... Uh, so the obvious thing to cover would say be like a car 98 B and then the car 98 K. Cause that's a very good way of explaining how the car 98 K came to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. if I do something like that earlier, that's great because it's, it's, it's much like 
any other transitional piece. So the Belgian uh, 8936 versus the 35, that's a very good way to talk about it. Talking about a lot of the VZ24s and things like that. These are all very good rifles to cover. I'm excited for all these Mausers. <laughs> they're all they're they're all good rifles to cover as sort of a transitional period, but the problem is they're going to get a little boring because transitional guns like that are just cut downs or whatever. Yeah, I was going to ask if you're going to do all like the inter interwar guns and there's there's a right. decent amount of like pistols in there, but yeah, all the, all so, the, all those Mausers are boring. The way hey. to keep the way that keep that more exciting is to go backwards and pick up some Civil War stuff. <laughs> yeah. And then that way you kind of can you can high low it because there's some weird stuff that happens in the Civil War that people are just not aware of technologically. Yeah, that's cool. so that gives it a little pepper. And then as you get through the a little bit of that, like once you've sort of got the the major bolt actions covered, then you open it up on the semi-autos because until you kind of talk about the sort of the world standardizing on the short rifle, you can't really explain the introduction of semi-autos and what they were trying to do. Right, and appreciate that kind of power. Right. Yeah, and a lot of the bolt action episodes seem like they're pretty much mostly covered by the World War One series for like the Car ninety eight K and the ninety one thirty and things like that. They're just short and mm-hmm. short and long rifles, so they'll be pretty easy to knock out. Then it gets interesting with the semi autos. I also like I can't wait to talk about submachine guns as a whole concept. Yeah. Um the problem is now is I really, really like to find like a 1921 Thompson first, Ooh. just because that'd be a lot easier to work with. I know of a man in Georgia that has one, but he doesn't want to fire the original, I believe, bolt assembly. So then I've got to go find another bolt assembly that I could put into his, or I got to find somebody that's willing to shoot theirs for light demonstration. So you will go kind of rare, like, like what about like Moss 40s and, and Moss 38 kind of like in between? Yeah, as much as we Rare can. Variants. Actually, cool. the the mosses represent a very difficult process because you're kind of telling a bolt action and a semi-automatic story at once. And yeah. that's a little weird to try to figure out how to do between two separate episodes. It's but exciting. we have access to a pure MOS 44 right now. Um, so that's an easy one to start on. The problem is getting the MOS 36 in place and figuring out which way to do it. But that's probably going to be a fairly early semi-automatic that we talk about um it's also a good one to talk about in terms of providing that weirdness factor where you're going no 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 they kept thinking that they were going to share production across these things like they did with the uh the, the, you know the attempt at the rc7 1917 to use labelle parts yeah uh, same idea kind of comes up again with the moss 36 and the 44 and you're going you know this is worth talking about and getting it all together in the right package and we were looking into it like they were working on the the semi-auto from like 30 from the time of the Moss 36 all the way up to 49. So well, I mean, they were, they were, they were working on the semi-auto from like 1900. (laughs) The French were doing an amazing job, but they kept getting stuck with their foot in the, uh, well, we already spent money on this. I mean, it's the sunk cost fallacy plus death by committee all wrapped into one big, horrible mess. Yeah. They're good at that. Yeah. The French repeatedly have excellent uh, con- conception and terrible execution. So World War II has a lot more experts, it seems, than World War One. So do you have any plans for any guests that might come on now to help talk about some of the World War II guns? Probably not. Just because of the format of the show. 
I mean, I don't mind sharing Spotlight, but the problem is we've had significant problems trying to work with others because we are very much streamlined assembly line with long hours put in. I mean, we've done it. We have one that's unreleased right now. We had Rob from British Muzzleloaders down last year, actually. Oh, cool. uh, but it's been a year since we did that, and nothing's been released. So, mm. yeah, I mean, and to be fair to him, all sorts of stuff has come up in his life that I'm not really privy to share. But, like, this is the problem, though, because for us, unlike others, like, so if you're, if you're Forgotten Weapons, you have a fairly large budget available to you. You have lots of supporters, but you also have income from the platform, and you can sort of pay to operate the business. And then if you're below the CNR cell level, you are a hobby level and you have a day job and that's what pays your bills and you just do what you want to do when you want to do it. We're on a schedule like Ian, but we don't have Ian's budget. <laughs> and yeah. so we're kind of stuck. It sounds simple to grab somebody and just have a conversation. The problem is double checking anything that's being discussed, understanding where their references are coming from, and then bundling it into a scene arsenal production is difficult. We could create another show, but if we do that, we're always we've always been uh if you watch the channel, we try very hard to do things consistently every time. So the minute of May became, you know, a, a format. Like everything's templated, I guess I should say. Right. And so if I start doing interviews, then I have to do an interview template. And if I do an interview template, then there's a release schedule of some sort. And then if we don't meet that release schedule, then people get upset. And so it's just one of those things where it's everything I have to do, I have to do sort of on a permanent basis. Right. The ball's rolling. As soon as you do one thing, it's onto the I get it. So you're like Mr. Beast in a way where you uh, you pick a, a strategy and then you just stick with it and a template. Yeah, uh, we have to. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's because it's very actually hard to put. I've had a hard time explaining it, but my biggest defense for why we do what we do, because a lot of people challenge me on it. You know, they go, why don't you just do it this way? Why don't you do it that way? And my answer is YouTube's uh, willingness to give us revenue has come and gone. Their willingness to even host some of our content has gone, come and gone. The alternatives are all very weak. What we do well is we actually gather patron funds at a level that is beyond our current reach. If you look at what an average episode of CNR Soul turns up in terms of viewers, it's not quite that many. I think it's I think it's an average of 50,000 people will watch every episode that is a primer episode. And yet we're able to take that small number and turn it into enough support to have an animator to unfortunately lower paid people but are full-time paid employees and then the ability to pay for ammo, travel, insurance, all that other stuff. Um we also have to kind of pay for a range time in a way. There's bills is the short answer. All that gets paid for, and the bills are paid, and we're not in the negative. And it all comes off the patron side of it with very little input from the YouTube side of it and very little input even from our sponsorships. Um, we, we appreciate having them, but they're not, they're not eating you know, more than 10% of the cost. So what's created that income is a loyalty that comes from a consistency and from a quality that we put out. And so as much as it gets tempting to sort of do all the things that YouTube wants and to do the things that people say they want to see because they're the ones that are bored on the internet and can hound me to ask me that question over and over and over again, the ones that are asking me the questions over and over and over again are honestly not usually the ones that are opening the purse strings. And so we're kind of stuck with right. being consistent and heavy on the information because those are the people that go, wow, I could have, I would have cost me $200 in books to go look this all up and, you know, 20 hours in time. I'd rather just give three bucks a month to this guy. 
Yeah, keeping keeping the format pure certainly helps keep keep the, that core group. And it's sad because I tell people no a lot, and I seem like I'm really unfun. But to be frank, that's that's how I get paid. It's how no, the show manages to exist. If you think about it, and you're you're giving money to someone's Patreon, and they're 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 not putting out videos half the time when they said they were, or they're putting out a lesser quality video, people are going to cancel right away. Even if they don't cancel, I consider that a disrespect for the people that are paying. Yeah. I mean, I, I think if I just stopped making videos, probably half my patrons would still be there in six months because they just forgot to cancel. But that's not <laughs> that's not the way to think about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, I, I don't want to look anything, you know, I don't know. I don't want to be ungrateful for their support. They, they have no reason to give me these finances except that they want to see it happen. And I told them at the front end that I want to see it happen. So guess what we're doing together now, you know? I don't know. I take my patrons very seriously. I'm sorry that I don't always have the time to put into them that I should, but I definitely take the responsibility seriously. Oh no, yeah, I think I think they all appreciate what you do, and as a Patreon myself, I certainly do. <laughs> yeah, and um, there's the rumor that you, your videos affect the market a little bit, so I like being a patron, and then you see the, what video's coming out next, and you go, alright, if I need to buy that now, let me get it now. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Italian Vetterlies went from... Uh, one hundred dollars to one hundred fifty dollars. There you go. Do some do some smart investing there. Ran the money up. Let's go to May a little bit here because we left May out of this so far, and I, I'm curious: Has May ever said no? I'm not doing that to anything. <laughs> uh, in terms of what firing a gun? Or... Yeah, I'm not shooting that, or I'm not. I'm not gonna <laughs> shoot that drone. There's only one firearm that ever put her off, uh, including the Vetterlies that, you know, one of which blew up in my face. But, like, <laughs> the only thing that ever put her off was that uh, the Swiss 1893 straight pull. And all it was is she went to, you know, she went to cycle the bolt, and the spring on the bolt stop was kind of old. And the way that gun works is it actually rides up the bolt stop for a second, and then the bolt stop has to snap into position to keep the bolt from making it out of the gun. And she fired it, and she cycled the bolt, and the bolt came right back into her face, and it made her so flustered for about five minutes. And she's going, are you sure this gun's safe? And I went, well, let me explain to you how this locks up. It's the same as the Monlicker 1895, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, I understand exactly what you're saying. I can see that the locking mechanism is working, and I understand that it is not dangerous to me. Emotionally, I hate this gun, and I'm mad at it now. And I went, that's fair. And so we had to kind of switch off and shoot something else for a little bit, and then she came back around and was like, okay, now I'll shoot it. I know it's safe. But like for a moment there, she just really didn't trust it, because she just hated that sensation of it coming apart in her hands. Yeah, having the bolt come back in your face, and you just think of... The explosion happening right, right there. Yeah, it's really funny because she goes, she's, she literally was looking at me going, I understand that I am not being reasonable right now. And I said, that's fine. And she, I was like, this is the first time in a decade. And she goes, yeah, I have no idea why, but this one just, we are having a fight. And I was like, that's okay. <laughs> so she, yeah, she, she, she's a real trooper. Yeah. yeah. Oh, to be fair, she also understands what she's getting into. I mean, we don't just <laughs> slap things in her hands. Was there something that she like really enjoyed shooting or liked a lot that you thought would be the opposite case uh god it's a struggle for me now i'd have to ask her to be honest with you she's better at like, being the keeper of her own opinions uh i do know she still genuinely loves tank of airs really <laughs> oh my god that's she the one i was gonna ask if she hated she wants one but we're too poor <laughs> like they, they went up in price again so i'm just going ah crap we'll never afford that now suck 
Yeah, but she really, we still, we're still friends with the gentleman that loaned us the one that we borrowed. And, you know, we see him about once a year because he's on our, our, he's on our way to uh, show shows. And so she'll always just be like, let me see my baby. And she loves that tank of her so much. <laughs> well, we, we know a guy in North Carolina with one if you need a hookup. <laughs> I probably know the same guy if I'm thinking straight. Uh, I don't know if he has ammo, though. Nobody, not. nobody has ammo. I get emails all the time. That's a that's a custom lathe operation. There's a gentleman who shoots custom. There's a gentleman that shoots artillery, who I have met but never really got. I don't know that he ever watched the channel or anything. We just sort of met, but he has a mach, he's a wealthy man that has a machinist that does his artillery ammo for him. And I think that's pretty much the only way to do a Tigger properly is to see if you could get artillery guy to do the rifle round. Everybody keeps trying to do a. Everybody keeps approaching it from being a uh, a rifle reloader, but I think you need to approach it from being an artillery reloader. And yeah, they went up in price. We watched the last Poulin uh, auction. Yeah, Jesus. And... Yeah. <laughs> they were crazy. That was uh, that was fun to watch. We touched on this a little before, but if anyone wants to send, if you want to borrow guns, do you accept people's uh, offers? Should they send you an email telling you what they have? Yeah, that's actually most of what we do is we borrow because, again, I don't have enough funds to afford everything we need to shoot. So the, shoot, you, shoot you an email. Uh, we we have a contact form. Yeah, we have a contact form. Um, for those of you who want to loan guns, I'm sorry you can't attach, attach images on the first pass on that. Uh, we got a lot of emails that are not helpful, <laughs> hmm. and so I had to I had to put up a form that was sort of okay. Here's these handful of questions. You know, I'm not numeric. I don't know where gun parts are. No, I won't tell you the value of your gun. I, I'm not appraiser. And uh, then you can check the box, and then you can send me a message. And I'm sorry, it's a little bit of a deviation, but that's the best we could do because I was getting inundated with emails. Yeah. Do you have, like, a, a list that you post of, like, hey, we need one of these, we need one of these, contact us if you know where one of these is? I, I would, but we have um, we've had a couple of occasions in the past when I was more naive, and I just sort of gave out, like, a wish list. And... Uh, People snipe the wish list as collectors. They would just use it as a. There's oh, one. Man. There's one gentleman that bought an item off the list, essentially from the early list, and went, "Hey, I have one of these." And I went, "Oh, sweet! I'd love to borrow that." Blah blah. And he goes, "No, I bought it so you can never use it." The hell? And I went, "What?" And he's like, "Yeah, now no one will see it." And it was rare. And I'm going, "Oh, I should have foreseen this." That's weird. Uh, there's, there, there are people that collect specifically to gatekeep. Um, we've, we've, so we're friendly with some of the auction companies and there's been a number of automatics that have sold that we'd like to get our hands on or other key pieces. And, uh, we've sent out probably like six to nine, actually it might be more like nine. I don't know. We've sent out not quite 10 requests of, Hey, we saw this sold at auction. Would you be willing to pass this message to the owner? And we trust the sites. It's, it's been a couple auction places. We trust them to, to actually do that. And, uh, they, you know, they'll pass along a message, hey, we'd like to borrow it, blah, 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 blah. And in every instance, they have declined to even answer us because they're people that can afford to do this and they want to hoard quietly and never let anybody have access. Well, the snooty rich which, collectors. Which yeah, I, don't, I don't know what it is, but it is, it is very much the most valuable part of the market, though, because it's always the machine guns that go for crazy money that there's only like one or two of. But wouldn't you want everyone to see a video on, on how great your your firearm is? I, I honestly, I haven't met any of them. Like, I, I can't say I haven't met any of these people. Uh, but I would imagine that there's, there is a mindset that says, 
my extreme wealth is a way for me to have exclusivity. And uh, part of that exclusivity is just locking things out of the market and just being like, no, it's mine until I die. And I, I don't know. I've never, I, I have never encountered a person like that in real life, but to be fair, by my very nature, I wouldn't encounter that person because I'm exactly the person they want to interact with if they were trying to just keep deep, dark secrets. Yeah. Now, I do know that there are some wealthy guys that don't want to be known. They want to stay totally anonymous or they have some celebrity or whatever that they don't want to be associated who have helped out, say, Ian's channel or others. Um, and so he's done some filming that way by keeping people, you know, anonymous. But that's a different animal. I'd, I would happily take that animal, but that's not what we're talking about here. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, never, never would have considered that. That's weird. And in any case, would photographs or videos help you in any way if someone did it even 4K or whatever? It is theoretically possible to train someone to take a CNR symbol usable <laughs> photo. Um, I have halfway trained Jonathan Ferguson to do it. <laughs> All right. You should put a, put a video out training how to do it. I, I want to do it. Jonathan Ferguson and I believe Danny Michael of the Cody Firearms Museum. Those are two gentlemen who are capable of taking an object, putting it on a white background or something similarly bright, and taking a cell phone photos with it fairly well lit. And with that alone, I can usually get some manner of things done with advanced editing. But uh, generally not as useful though <laughs> like it's only when i you know if i need a very specific piece i can ask around the curators for something like that but for the most part your average person unfortunately can't generate the photos that i need to work with and even if they can then technically i don't have rights over those photos so i'm going to spend a, a number of hours editing them and then cataloging them but not being able to profit by them if i need to later on so other than firearms and photos uh could viewers help out by sending you like scans of documents or books that they have that you might not be able to source or are you pretty pretty good on sourcing those um i mean i'm usually a great sourcer but if you if you have encountered especially original documents referring to obscure non-english firearms then that's great so usually if it's in english that's very accessible to us but we've had some guys reach out um from around the world with Spanish documents or things like that. Spain is actually the worst for us right now. Holy crap. I would love a Spanish expert. Um, we've had guys reach out here and there for us in that regard, uh, in terms of turning up data, not money, but data. Um, we even had a gentleman who was trying to help me out with the revolver research we've been doing that came in from uh, Denmark. And just by, you know, just by hearing out what I wanted to find goes over to the Danish archives starts asking questions they then he starts talking to the danish military and basically just gets let in everywhere like he's having a great time like he's now he's gone all through their army archives and everything he's pulling original documents out for uh like dimension drawings for the madsen rifles and stuff like that and it's just like yeah it wow. turns out it's just sitting over here in a corner and nobody asked about it for 50 years you know and so just him coming in and asking for it they're like oh cool and they just pull it all out because nobody thought to come looking for it nice wow. Love that. And I like that now a lot of things are digital that used to be just, you know, book format that now people are taking the time to digitize even the foreign books I've been seeing coming over, you know, in a PDF or whatever. Oh, yeah, it's great. International is great. I, we have so many books here now. And then it's gotten so much easier to read them 
um, you know, before we used to have to use a fairly expensive machine translation software that would do OCR. And then yeah. we, we still use it for scanning whole books for our own internal use. No, I will not give you copies of my scanned books. That's a <laughs> violation of copyright. I would get in big trouble with my peers, let alone the law. Um, but we scan all, right. all, we scan all right. our... Don't email, don't email those to me after this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> We scan all of our foreign language books and then uh, translate them to English whenever we need to. Awesome. Uh, the other thing I can do now, though, is, you know, most phones just have photo translation. So if I get in a book that's in a foreign language and I need to scout through it, I can kind of, using keywords, I can make my way through it enough to get onto the pages, maybe five pages that I need. And I can just snap photos with my cell phone and get quick translations that help me dial it in. And then, boom, I'm on my way. So it's not it's not terrible. It's gotten really accessible. The Google's digitization of documents has been extremely helpful. There's other resources like um, the BNF over in France has a lot of documents now. The Hathi Trust tends to have some documents that uh, Google Docs doesn't have. There's a British newspaper archive that we're subscribed to that I can pull a lot of things out of. That's pretty nice. Have you ever been? Have you ever had to like learn some phrases or? different words in foreign languages to help translate some or pretty much honestly there for you not so much learning the original word but learning what horrible thing it translates to because you get these sentences that just i believe german like the word for sheath translates to vagina <laughs> yeah yeah. And so you're just going oh god <laughs> you just have to learn to just read through it there's a lot of dutch words that translate kind of weird and so you just get used to what it's trying to say i believe like the stock for a Dutch rifle, if you're reading about Dutch rifles, they instead of stock, it'll translate as flask. It took me a hot minute to figure out what it was talking about. Okay. Hmm. So there's stuff like that where I've gotten used to idiosyncrasies with the auto translation more so than the original language. And then we've had a ton of help from people that have been willing to go in person. Um, we managed to get some helpers in France and Belgium for pulling patent data. And then we've got a guy on our Discord that's been helping to organize that data because we've been put on the website. We've been putting together uh, every revolver patent we can lay our hands on. Yeah, I because... saw. It's crazy. Oh uh, yeah, we went a little I crazy. I didn't realize how many there were. Oh, oh thousands. <laughs> I mean, it's just one of those things where I realized nobody nobody is fluent at all in how to talk revolver or revolver action. And I when I started trying to, I realized after making a few episodes on revolvers that I was stepping over my own claims like i'd say well wait i said it was this kind of action last time but this other book told me it's this other kind of action and then when i try to go look up those actions that seems fair and all but then there's this gun that's five years older that does the same thing and so i kept running into sort of conflicts of claims and then i finally realized that no there's no such thing as a book that actually has it right there's something close to it um there's a gentleman who i believe passed away in the 90s who had written a book in german that was the first, the only one that I know of that tried to have a sort of universal understanding of which action type, but you could tell he had done it less evolutionarily and more identification and it, it missed some gaps. And so we've been trying to fill those gaps in and get it back on a sort of a corrected path. And I think we've won at this moment. I think we have the picture together, but I'm trying to sort of suss out any, uh, and all the patents are, they're all technically different. I know, you know, they're supposed to do a patent search, right? Every time you file a new one. Yeah, there's a bunch missing in Belgium is the problem. And Belgian patents tend to be the most important for the 1860s and 70s for revolver development. 
So we think we know what we're talking about, but the problem is we're missing some gaps in the Belgian patents that we want to double check. You had to get a patent in the U.S. separately? Yeah, yeah, you'd have to file in each country. All right. So it could be slightly different, maybe, in mm -hmm. the other we have We have a huge gap in the Spanish patents. I suspect that Spain is responsible for a little more innovation than people give them credit. I don't believe because, that. Well, you got to think about it this way. So you can't copy, like, look at the Ruby pistol. You can't copy the Browning pocket pistols, right, in other countries. You can try to get around them by designing really wacky guns that look different. But what, what the Spain does is they go, hey, you haven't made it here in two years. We're going to make it any, we're going to let somebody else make it. And when somebody else goes to make it, they make improve, incremental improvements. Those incremental improvements would only have shown up if A, the original patenter decided to add those improvements, B, someone licensed the original patent and then made improvements with permission, or C, you wait for the expiration of the patent and then those improvements get made, which is often why you, it takes a long time for improvements to show up that seem fairly obvious. With Spain, they're sort of, their native designers are allowed to make incremental improvements very quickly. And they even patent those incremental improvements in Spain against each other. And so what you see is the Ruby has a number of improvements coming from the Browning designs that weren't implemented until later on the Brownings or in the market, not necessarily on a Browning. And so you go, oh, actually, I guess they were the first to market with those. They're the first to really consider them because they could. And I suspect there's some truth there with revolvers as well. However, getting Spanish patents has proven to be very difficult, <laughs> like early ones. So and I need I need a man in Madrid that's willing to go do some digging. Do you know there's a place where you you can you just can't get into or you just have to find them? They have a patent office. You can go there and file for patents as far as I understand it. All right. I don't have any time to travel to Spain and figure it out. <laughs> and then I've heard that Spain is notorious for being difficult to navigate the bureaucracy, but once you've got it figured out, you're up and running. So, I mean, I'm willing to take, you know, we have income. I'm willing to set some aside to pay somebody to go digging through the archives in Spain, but somebody has to be in Madrid to do it, you know? You know, oh, we're about to do some trivia here, but there's some trivia I didn't know. What was the first primer or gun video that was the first to use War Were Declared? Was it the very first one? No, I don't think so. Do you know? No, I don't remember, to be honest with you. Oh, shit. And what was the last one? I, I'm trying to remember the last. Oh, wait. Did you not have this answer written down? No, this isn't the trivia. This is oh, you're trivia. asking. I you said trivia. Oh, okay. I don't know. I'm, I'm literally asking <laughs> you. I don't know. No, I live in a... The last 10 years of my life passed in a fever dream. I don't know how I got this old. <laughs> well, now I have to do the research on that. Yeah, now you have to watch a bunch of shit. Going to have to watch every single one. In order. Right. <laughs> I got to start with one. Going I, back. Might, I could probably... I could speed up the end of it because I know I could search my uh, scripts. I could just go through my scripts <laughs> quickly and search them, but I don't know about the beginning because I'm not sure how I tagged it out originally. <laughs> That's a legendary thing. All right. It's time for some Millsurp trivia. Today's trivia, as usual, is just a fun way to bring up some different Millsurp topics and discuss them a little bit. And they won't be that difficult to you because they're related to the CN Arsenal YouTube channel. Oh, God. So 
but I kept Kelly in the dark, so he's gonna have to guess, and we're gonna try to see if we embarrass him if he doesn't know your channel or. Uh, I'm gonna be guns. embarrassed. I have the world's worst memory. Let's go. No, you know, right. you know it. This is why I write everything down. That's why the show exists. <laughs> hey, that's what Karim and Steve said. They're like, yeah, we we don't we don't know off the top of our heads. This is just a reference book for right. us. <laughs> that's why we have a book. Yeah, and then they knew everything off the top of their heads. I heard that one. Yeah, <laughs> they do. Uh, all right, here we go. Question one. The most popular British firearm primer subject and a top three YouTube short, this pistol line got around a little bit and saw service in the Boer Wars and World War I, but was not a great military arm as the action was a bit finicky when dirty, and even the gun angle and gravity could affect the stroke. Oh, okay, now you're getting really obvious. <laughs> Do I let him try first since yeah, I know it? You probably know it. So, Kelly, what, what do you know it? Well, I want to say the Webley, obviously, but... Oh, you're almost broke. there. Keep going. The Webley oh, what? Web, oh, Webley Fosbury. The <laughs> yes. So, did May actually have trouble with the, the short strokes, like she said? Um, We had a couple malfunctions with that gun, but nothing serious. Uh, that actually belongs to a buddy of mine uh, here in town, so I've seen that gun a number of times. But it, they're just—they're not good. <laughs> they're also insanely speculated. Like when they sell uh, at auction, it seems like they go for six thousand dollars or something. But somebody—I don't know how many years ago—somebody's like, "I have to have fifteen thousand for one of these." And so every time you see one priced, they're priced at fifteen, seventeen, whatever insane number, and then they just never sell for that. They always sell for you know six. Yeah, we saw a couple of those at Tulsa, and they were in like the ten range. But of course, they didn't move. Yeah, they're not gonna. Well, you'd be the guy to ask. Are there many uh, revolvers that use this this style of recoil to rotate the cylinder like this? No, 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 no. There's <laughs> that, and then there's like, like what the Mateba later on. That's it. So it just wasn't a great. There's something. I feel like something else did it. Wasn't there a um a Union pistol that did that too? Union uh. Union firearms, didn't they do... Theirs is a recoiling pistol. The trigger, though, doesn't it feel much better because it's it's not pulling the, the, I mean, the it's cylinder? A, it's a single-action pull, so there is that. So The safety on that example was awful, but I, I haven't really handled many others, so I couldn't tell you. That's a, not a great one. All right, question two here. The most popular... This is going to be easy here. Most popular CNR Citadel Small Arms Primer of World War One was of this u.s firearm and it's not what most people will assume it is but it's this firearm infamously known for receiving these horrible protests against its use in war oh go ahead <laughs> I, I got i got this one too do you want the first pass though you gotta go yeah, the trench gun because it's cruel yeah but which trench gun is the most popular one on the episode Ooh, which is one it the not the 1897 because it sounds like unless it's a trick question the... It is the 1897. Yeah, it's not oh, it wasn't Yeah, the Remington's way below that. Now, I read that the Germans adopted a modified modified 1897s at one point. Is that true? What? I read somewhere they unofficially it said adopted modified 1897s. What did they do to modify them? I don't know. Now I want to know where you read this. Send me the source. Yeah, All right, I'll find it. it. I will say, you know, I get. Uh... I'd say one in 20 times I'm told, I heard whatever. Well, I always ask for the source. I never back off asking for it because one in 20, it turns out to be true or adjacent to true for some reason. All right, Tom, pressure's on. No, it says here, 
despite protesting them, Germans did not listen to Ludendorff and decided to use and unofficially adopt the 19, 1897 for their own use with modifications and named it Trench Mauser and mainly placed them with stormtroopers. What? Trench Mauser? It's on Wikipedia, so you know it's true. Oh my god, okay, hold on. Now I'm gonna... What's, what source is that citing? Click the little thing next to it. Parks 97. Oh god. In October 97, the Army Lawyer, some article from October 97. <laughs> so some guy said... Some guy in 1987 said this. 1997, that's even better. I wonder what he was citing. This, right. this is this is my job now, right? This is what I do. I have to go. Okay, the, who said that? Okay, who said that? Okay, who said? That? <laughs> yeah, the the ninety seven is a very popular episode that no one seems to remember what I said in it because they keep repeating the same stuff over and over again. <laughs> well, I've got a lot of questions that probably people could just Google, but it says, "What's the difference between a trench and a riot config?" Well, there's none actually. I mean, not really, because the the funny thing is they're all considered riot guns with bayonet. the The trench moniker came later. Oh, so the same. And and do the commercial ones slam fire also? I mean, yeah, slam fire was just a thing. Nice. The, the weird thing is everybody acts like slam fire was a feature, but it's the absence of a feature. They they didn't put in essentially what you'd consider an interrupter in because nobody cared to add that. Is is really the adding? We're getting rid of slam fire was a safety consideration. Yeah, but it's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone wants it for that instantly. That's the first thing they mentioned. Yeah, and you can shoot grenades out of the sky. I like y'all's testing on that. <laughs> oh, that was a fun day. The worst thing is I have people going like, "Mistbuster said you could do it," and I'm going, "Did you watch the episode?" Because it's not, they didn't use the same parameters. They just said it's possible to shatter a grenade with buckshot. Like, okay, that's possible, but that's not, I would, nobody's going to, I mean, not, I mean, okay, maybe somebody took the chance. They probably regretted taking that chance. (laughs) And also the, before the trench guns were even issued, there were ads in um, magazines from DuPont Chemical uh, that were depicting them shooting grenades out of the air. And I guarantee you that's where it all came from. Like, I, I can't be, you know, can I say 100% for certain? No. But, I mean, come on. This is the way media works, right? People see it in a magazine and they go, oh, they're yep. using them to shoot grenades out of the air. And that just became the narrative, you know? Yep. Those them grenade shooters? That's how it works. Yep. And what they were really doing is they were trying to sell skeet shooting as a hobby. So Because this is so brilliant. They were doing everything they could to sell skeet shooting as a hobby because they had found that skeet shooters consume the most powder, which means they make way more money from people shooting skeet than they do from people shooting rifle competitions. Uh, that's a, well, that's a business. Right. And then they're also, you know, if they have a business selling the uh, chilled shot or whatever, then that's even more money because they're selling more lead. All right. Question three. Small Arms of World War I Primer 104 tells the story of the Model 1917 revolver. It came in variations by two different manufacturers, Smith & Wesson and Colt, and for which Smith & Wesson introduced this device for quicker reloading and extraction. Oh, this okay. one's too easy. Yeah, okay. Yeah. This, oh, which, these are oh, really which one easy. is it? Half. Yeah, half, the Half Moon Clips. I don't, I don't want to embarrass you. Know, what if I make you get one wrong? That's embarrassing, you know? Uh, that's, I don't care. I've been embarrassed before. <laughs> but it's more about asking you the questions like, why were the clips made in three round and... And then six round after the war, what 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 was the deal with not making him six round right away? Three rounds superior. For just, I agree. 
for topping off or no for being able to keep it on your belt you don't like having a six round speed loader sucks <laughs> yeah they're, they're big they're kind of wonky they bend i gotta i gotta get a piece of leather made but um pro tip the best uh speed loader for revolvers was developed in the 1930s and then immediately forgotten about they're like they're, I've, i own about 10 of them and i kind of keep an eye out for auctions and everything uh, and I'm still going to keep it a secret until I do my video on it so I can buy more of them because they're going to be worth a hundred bucks each when I'm done. This is my retirement oh. plan. <laughs> but, uh, I found out about them and uh, they, they, they come up every once in a while and they have a really weird design that nobody understands what it's doing. I, I finally, somebody will figure this out when I tell the story. I finally found out that they, there was an article about them in like Scientific American in like 1934 or something. I went and found that copy, had to buy it on eBay read the article and went, oh my God, they're supposed to come with a special leather pouch. And so uh, they had like a spring-loaded mechanism that nobody understood what it was really doing. They just thought it was for margin of error. But actually they're supposed to be stored folded in half and when you draw them, they spring together. So they work like half-moon clips until you draw them and then they turn into a full-moon clip thing. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, cool. They feed fast as crap. Like they're the be- like nothing today is even half as good. Wow, so with all your revolvers, you, you need to get all the speed loaders now and do a whole speed loading comparison. <laughs> I have a, I weirdly have a Perdo on loan right now, like. And you need a witty, like it's a trap. You need a witty name for it. That that. <laughs> yeah, that, that series went great. <laughs> all, yeah, I, all seventeen people that watched it. I, I was one of them. I I was waiting for someone to get like hit with the the trap. You know what? It, uh, by accident, they, that's very scary when you're setting it. It's a yeah. trap. It's my favorite series we ever did. And I really want to do, I, I want to refilm season two because we've technically filmed season two. Okay. But uh, Kevin, who Kevin showed up with a cough, and I said, I swear to God, if that's COVID, he goes, It's not COVID. It was COVID. We all got sick. And then I, <laughs> I really died. Um, so he was in, in, it was like 90 deg- 98 degrees out, and it was so humid, and there was no clouds. So we're all standing in the field, and we David had just changed ranges. So the, the range had just been a, like a buddy of mine that's a heavy equipment operator come in and cleared the range. So it's just this, it looked like World War One. It was utter devastation in all directions, just a channel in the woods. The, the berm wasn't even built yet, but that's okay because we were shooting ski if we were shooting at all. And we're standing in the middle of this desolation with the hot sun bearing on us. The light is terrible. Kevin has a fever. I'm dying of heat. And May just showed me a clip. She's, I was like, how bad is it? And she showed me a clip. And it's just us discussing this dog that I had that died. And there's no punchline. And we both just stare vacantly into space and then kind of hurl a trap. And I'm just going, oh, wow. We cannot air this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. You can put it in a montage maybe later on. Well, yeah, so my thought is we should refilm it. And then at the end, we should just put something horrifying from the original attempt. <laughs> Yeah, definitely refill it. That those things are interesting. It's a yeah, they're cool. I went out and bought one just for shits and gigs. Yeah, we have some great stuff here. I just need to. Uh, so much I got to do. <laughs> <laughs> Never in. Well, speaking of great stuff, question four: The CN Arsenal's most popular YouTube short right now features Ian McCollum from Forgotten Weapons firing the Hotchkiss Type Universal, an amazing compact little uh, weapon here manufactured in france in the late 40s and it was a semi-auto that folds and unfolds compactly and quickly now i'm gonna stump you on this one kelly it primarily was exported by france to these two countries Ooh. oh i'm out i have not done no reading on that gun uh, I know. got him uh, some south american country got it 
All right. Like, yes. Uh, Venezuela. Other than that, I know. I have no idea. Venezuela and Morocco. Oh, Morocco. That's cool. Oh, French influence there. Okay, that makes sense. So, did you try doing this breakdown that Ian did? Well, I mean, in slow motion, but no, not. <laughs> Seems I'm, like there's a lot of pinch points on that. Yeah, you know, everybody gets mad at me, and they're like, "Oh, this guy's like a clumsy fat idiot," and I go, "Yeah, I'm a clumsy fat idiot. I don't know why <laughs> everybody keeps thinking I need to be high speed. I am definitely not." <laughs> I was picturing you both trying it out, and then Ian said, "I got it. I, I'm better at this here." <laughs> no, no, it's actually the the funnier thing is that particular gun you can overdraw the mag. So Ian was, I have so many outtakes of him just ripping the mag right out of it and other stuff. So it was a lot of just like, let's just get this one thing together. There is, um, if we can get to a second season of the Hand Trap series, I believe there's Hand Trap footage of Ian and I playing with a Hand Trap. I'm not sure how good or bad the footage is. Uh, I do know he suckered me like a jerk. How'd he do that? We were shooting Trap with a gorilla gun, and I asked him how the hold was, but he's not a skeet shooter. So he told me the hold completely 180 from what it should have been. So I, I fire like five times at this thing and miss every time. And he's like, well, you really suck at this and I'm good at it. And I'm just going, I'm going to, like, I don't know why. I kept holding on to, well, he told me it was here. What am I doing wrong? And then I suddenly went, wait a second, why am I believing him? And I switched the hold and sure enough, blew it away on the last one. But by then it was awkward. So when I handed it to May, I said, don't listen to him. The hold is here. And she ran like five for five, no misses. And I went, well, there's my revenge, but now I still look like a fat idiot again. <laughs> Classic. All right. Now, going back to, to something in your range, question five. The first U.S. pistol reviewed by the crew was not the famed Colt 1911, of course, but was this older gun, the first military U.S. military revolver with a swing-out cylinder, and the most famous of which was recovered from the USS Maine Presented to Teddy Roosevelt, who then, as the legend says, brandished it to rally his Rough Riders during the famed charge up San Juan Hill. Uh, I know this one because I searched for one of these for a while because I was kind of had an interest in them. But it's the U.S. eighteen ninety two. So I'm trying to remember, was that a ninety two or ninety five that actually got recovered by Roosevelt? Do you have the link? I want to see it. Uh, no, I don't even have the pistol. I just have this here. Oh, okay. Oh, they're saying it was a, Colt a U.S. New Colt Ar New Army Model 1892. Okay, that makes no sense, because that didn't exist. But <laughs> It might have been Wikipedia again. I'm not sure. Hold, I on, let me, let me, hold on, let me see what's going on here. Now you got me curious. So I live, off of, I live off a spreadsheet, so let me make sure before I say that that didn't exist. But All right, let's see. I can, I can pull up a spreadsheet like you wouldn't believe. So there was... Oh, no, there was there was the army. The army picked it up in 1892. That's right. So 1894 was the second army. So there was an 1892 army. But yeah, why was an 1892 army on a ship? Wouldn't it have been in 1889? Or did, wasn't, there, wasn't there an 1895 Navy as well? Okay, it gets really confusing. So the, the Navy adopts the 1889 new Navy, which uses the... Okay, did you guys see the episode we did on the Colt 1878 double-action big bore revolver? I have not seen that one yet. Okay, so the Colt 1878 is notorious for having no cylinder stop. Instead, the hand is also the cylinder stop. Uh, so the, the the first swing-out cylinder from Colt, the 1889, also does this. It has no external cylinder stops. And it turns out that's a bad idea for timing. It just doesn't work out well, especially under wear. So 
1892, when the army adopts the this new Navy revolver, they say, we want cylinder stops. So that becomes the Army 1892 new army. So now you have the new Navy, no stops, and the new army stops. And then the Navy goes, well, we want cylinder stops too. Take these back and cut cylinder stops into them. So they go back and do that. And so you have technically what would be like, I guess, an 1889 slash 92. And then when they buy more in 95, the Navy ends up with the Model 95. In which case, they also picked up uh, rubber grips. So the problem is, if you're talking about new armies and new navies, which are the same revolvers, but not really, you have the Model 89, the 92, the 94, the 95, the 96, the 99, and the 1901, before you get to the 1903 and the 1905. And all of those are distinct mechanical variations of the same handgun. (laughs) That's fun. Which is why you need a book. Right, which is the which, by the way, this is at the same time that you have the Craig Jorgensen ninety two and ninety six and ninety eight, but then you have the nineteen oh one site in the so it's like there was a period in American history where we were so schizophrenic on model numbers and features that there was no hope of having a parts supply that made any sense. Man, and then was it World War One that stopped what put put an end to this explosive period? Uh, no, actually, we got it together before that. Whenever we went over to the 1903, it was like, we have got to stop this. Um, although we didn't, because we did the 1903, and then we did the 1903-05, and then we did the 1903-05-06. But we don't say it that way. We we just covered our asses by saying, this was always the 1903. That's weird. Then why is the bayonet the model 1905? <laughs> <laughs> what, what were you guys doing again that you did it with the crag and the revolvers? Nope, nope, don't talk about that. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. All right. For our next section, I think we're coming to some some FUD lore. We call this section true shit or bullshit. <laughs> so we'll have some, just a, a few quick little FUD lores here that you can just... All right, that's it for part one and the quote-unquote interview part. Next up is part two, which is mostly all Milsurf firearm-related questions and where we find out lots of Athias' opinions. We also talk some Fuddlord, do another speed round, ask some what-if questions, and actually talk some shooting, some range day decisions, reloading, even get into some modern weapons. Talk about a lot in part two, so definitely check it out. And if it's not out yet for you, head over to Millsurf HQ over at Patreon for the early release. That was Athias' idea. To be continued.